Thank you, Richard. Yep, so today we're in Genesis chapter 9 and starting from verse 18. If you've got a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, we just put your hands up. Uh, Chris will get one to you. Um, just down here. And as you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9, verse 18, we'll be continuing it in our Genesis series. Um, if you have a, a heading in, at the top of your Bible, you'll notice that today's passage is about Noah and his sons, or Noah and his descendants. Of course, these headings weren't actually in the Bible when it was, uh, uh, wasn't in the original language, but it's put there to give us an outline and an understanding of the flow of the text. It'll help us understand what important events or important people are coming up. And so with that in mind, we know that the important people in this passage is Noah and his sons. And if you've been following in the Genesis series so far, you'll know that we've been reading about this. We've also been reading about it in our daily devotions. And you expect this level of excitement and expectation from Noah and his sons. Don't forget, we've just seen them saved from the flood. They've been given a fresh start by God. God has blessed them twice in the previous passage to go out and multiply and if you didn't know what was to come, you would kind of think, well, this is it. This is where this story ends. And they all lived happily ever after. And yet we know that's not the case. But the question is, well, why is that not the case? Why wasn't Noah able to learn from the past mistakes of mankind before the flood? Why weren't they able to settle down into the incredible grace and mercy that God had for them? Well, today we're going to look at this. And we're going to break this passage into three parts to understand, to see what was, what was going wrong. First, we're going to see the expectation of Noah and his sons. The expectation of Noah and his sons. And for that, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 20. We'll start to see the expectations of God clashing with the expectations of man. We're then going to look at the reality of Noah and his sons. And for that, we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23 would start to see that who, what the reality of who Noah was and who his sons were. And then we'll start to realise why Noah never really was the answer. Then we're going to see the legacy of Noah and his sons. We're then going to see the legacy. And it's here that we'll see something incredible. We're going to see a prophecy that will explain the very reason why we're sat in church today. Now, before we see all of that thing, all of those things, I think we should just pray quickly. Lord, we just pray that you would open our hearts to receive your words today. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit so that we can understand this passage and transform us as we apply these words to our hearts and our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take a look at our first point, and that is the expectation of Noah and his sons. So we're heading off in verse 18. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark and were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. So here we have three people. Well, we have four people. We have Noah and his three sons. And we also have mentioned here of Canaan. Now, there's a massive expectation, as I've just said. In last week's passage, we saw God bless them twice. They've just come from the ark. They worship God. And then God established a covenant with them. We also saw God bless Noah and his sons. And he commissioned them to multiply and fill the earth. And as I said, there's a lot of expectation from God here. And yet what we're going to see is this expectation from God is beginning to clash with the expectation of man. And you might be wondering where this expectation of man comes from. 
But we can trace it all the way back in Noah's family line in Genesis chapter 5. We see that Noah comes from great stock. We have Noah's great-grandfather, Enoch. He was considered so righteous that he walked with God and he was taken to heaven alive. We then have Noah's grandfather, Methuselah. Methuselah was the oldest man to live in the Bible at 969 years old. But it was Noah's father, Lamech, who sort of ramped that expectation up to the next level because Lamech prophesied that Noah would be the person to break the curse that was placed on Adam. And we see that in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years old, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord is cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Because of the curse of Adam, life was difficult. Already at this point in scripture, we have this hope of a redeemer who will come and reverse the curse of Adam. And we saw in our sermon that um, Owen gave us of Cain and Abel, that Adam and Eve had sort of like pinned their hopes in Cain. Obviously, Cain was able to work the land and he gave God a fruit offering, but Cain was never the answer because Cain ends up killing his brother Abel. And in fact, the ground becomes cursed again by God. But we know that this curse still exists because Lamech says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. This one person was Noah. And so Noah named his son, well, Lamech named his son Noah, which sounds like the Hebrew word for comfort. It was the idea that Noah would bring comfort and rest from the painful toil of the ground. Of course, we know that rest and comfort isn't truly what we need. What mankind ultimately needs is saving from their sins. But I think this illustrates a point, really, that sometimes as humans, we have expectations that aren't of God. Sometimes we think that our way is the best way. And so with that in mind, we're, we're walking into these passages with the expectation of man to be rescued from the comfort of the toil of the land. And we have the expectations of God to go forth and multiply. Verse 19. These were the sons of Noah, and from these people, the whole earth was dispersed. Ultimately, three people did end up starting to follow the expectations of God. And these three people were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And they're fulfilling God's commission to go out and multiply and fill the earth. And if you glance further up in the text, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 9, you'll see the, two, the, the blessing that God gave to Noah and his sons. In verse 1, uh, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then if we go down to verse 7 as well, we'll read, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. See, Noah's included in these commissions. But if we notice, Noah here is now excluded from that commissioning. Noah isn't fulfilling God's expectations to have more children. At this point, we know from last week that Noah was 600 years old. That might seem a little bit old, but with God's blessing, you would expect that he would still follow the commissioning of God. Perhaps another expectation had sort of taken the interest of Noah. Perhaps he was focusing more on the expectation of man. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Here we see that Noah's done it. He's He's reversed that curse that was, that was given by God. But 
before we get too carried away, perhaps it wasn't actually Noah who did this. Perhaps it was, who God, it was God who did this. Something has changed post-flood, and Noah is able to plant a vineyard. But let's go back again to the beginning of, of chapter 9, and we're looking now at for verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all fish of the sea. Into your hands they're they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. So now we see that, that the animals are fearful of men, that God has given man animals to eat. God's delivered them to Noah and to mankind, and he's giving them green plants for them. God says, I give you everything thereby breaking the curse. So Noah is now able to, to plant a vineyard, and it's not because of Noah, but it's because of God. And with this in mind, you would, you would think that perhaps Noah would move on from this, this thought that he's going to relish in these uh, blessings. But no, he, he stops following the commission of God. And now we're starting to see a hint at the reality of who Noah is and who his sons will be. Now, before we get onto this next verse, I want us just to see the significance that it was a vineyard that Noah planted. This is the first time in Scripture that we see the mention of vineyards and of wine. And we shouldn't jump the gun and just assume that at this point, planting a vineyard is wrong. In Scripture, vineyards are important. Israel was sometimes compared to a vineyard. Some of Jesus' parables used vineyards. In Scripture, wine in general isn't considered a bad thing either. It's, it's considered a blessing in some cases. We know that Jesus often counted wine. His first miracle was turning water into wine. He drank wine with his disciples and he established his covenant with a cup of wine. He says that he'll drink wine upon his resurrection. However, like we're about to see, ultimately Noah is only a human and like most humans, we take what's good and we turn it into something that is sinful and bad. Now, as we apply these first few verses and the expectations of Noah, I can't help but see the parallel between God's expectations of Noah and Jesus' expectations of his disciples. I mean, the narratives are quite similar to the commissioning. God saves Noah from death. Noah worships God on a mountaintop. God creates a new covenant and then commissions Noah to go out and multiply. And in parallel, we have Jesus. Jesus makes a covenant with his disciples. He saves his disciples from death. His disciples worship Jesus on top of a mountain. And then Jesus commissions them to go out and multiply and fill the earth. Jesus said, multiply spiritual children and fill the earth. (laughs) Jesus says in uh, Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As as disciples of Jesus, we're commissioned to multiply. We're not to be like Noah, resting in our blessings and chasing our own expectations. We're to help make spiritual children of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, do some of us sometimes slip into that mindset of Noah And are we resting in God's blessings and focusing on our own expectations? 
So here we've seen the expectations of man clashing with the expectations of God. But now we're going to move on to point two. We're going to see the reality of Noah and his sons. The reality of Noah and his sons. And in verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Here we see the reality of Noah and the reality of wine. But first, let's look at the reality of Noah. He's ignored God's expectations and now he's a drunken mess. He's naked in his tent. I think we could safely say at this point that Noah wasn't really fulfilling that promised redeemer role. It's clear that role didn't belong to him. This passage throws up so many questions though, like how long has Noah been doing this for? Why did Noah need to get drunk? We don't know the answers to these questions, but herein lies the realities of alcohol. Alcohol brings difficult questions. It creates confusion and hurt often. See, alcohol is a narcotic. And when the brain is affected by alcohol, the person loses self-control. It numbs people from reality. And they do things that they wouldn't usually do. I think Proverbs 23 describes this in a way that I never could. And I'm just going to read it for you now. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mix wine. Don't look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Alcohol has this effect of numbing our realities. Here we see in Proverbs 23 how alcohol is used to take away the pain of reality. They struck me, you will say. They beat me, but I did not feel it. And so we see here at the end of Proverbs the addiction of alcohol too. I must have another drink. This can be the reality for so many people today. Perhaps you or a loved one is battling alcoholism. Perhaps you know somebody who is. Alcohol has become something that numbs the pain of people's lives. If you're struggling with any of these things, or if you know of somebody who struggles with alcoholism, then please, at LBC, we have some incredibly gifted people who's worked with people with addictions. I've already checked with Lorraine, and she said it's okay for me to, to mention her in this, but she works for CAP, and she has some experience in working with people with addictions. In this week's house group questions, I'm going to be asking you some questions to identify specific moments, though, where alcohol is uh, forbidden. But the take-home for today is that Christians should never become drunk. It's clear from the letters of Paul that he condemns Christians getting drunk. It's okay to drink alcohol, but if you're going to get drunk off of it, then that's a sin, full stop. He says so in Romans in 1 Corinthians, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in 1 Timothy and Titus. And there's no way that I can really pull the punch. Drunkenness is a sin, and it's usually a gateway to other sins. But God, who condemns, is also a God who can heal. So I would just pray with you today, if you are struggling with any of these things, that God can heal your situation. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. 
Then Shem and Japheth took a garment. They laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Now, here we're fully into the passages to show the reality of Noah and their sons. We have Noah, who was once a sober man living among drunkards, now a naked man lying naked in front of his sons. We also have Ham, who for some bizarre reason thinks the best thing to do in this solution is to run outside the tent and tell his brothers. And then we have Shem and Japheth trying to deal with the situation by covering up their father's nakedness in their own way. It's clear that despite the flood, sin hasn't totally, totally been erased from mankind. But what we're going to see here is the contrast between Ham and the contrast between his brothers Shem and Japheth. I mean, we're told here that Ham is the father of Canaan. He already has a child, so he should, he's old enough to know better. He's a father himself, so he should know how to respect a parent. But no, what he does is he sees the sin of his father, he sees his nakedness, and he goes to run and tell his parents. Contrast this to the actions of Shem and Japheth. With loving meekness, they put a garment over their shoulders and they gently walk backwards to cover up the nakedness of the father so that they wouldn't see his nakedness and that so nobody else would see it either. Ham's attitude was destructive, while Shem and Japheth's attitude was restorative. I think our actions and our reactions to other people's sin should always be restorative. Paul says in the beginning of Galatians chapter 6, and we were just about to get to that in our Galatians series, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The key words here are restore and gentleness. When we see sin, how do we react? Do we act like Ham and, um, Ham and tell the first people that we see about the sin that we've just encountered? Do we gossip about it? Or do we act like Shem and Japheth and do we shut down the situation in lovingness and meekness? Too often I see from the pulpit, especially in some well-known churches, we see, can see people making jokes to dishonour and discredit other Christians. I mean, even if someone has sinned, we should always remain meek and gentle. We should never be coarse or rash or offensive. We should never be witty or jokey about the sins that other people have done. And sadly, I think that as Christians, we can become great at kicking our, our wounded. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And this is the ultimate reality of Noah and his sons, and it's the reality of us. Ultimately, we're sinners. If we think we stand as people who are perfect, who never sin, then we're gravely mistaken. We must take heed lest we fall. And so now we're moving into the third point of our sermon today, and we're looking at the legacy of Noah and his sons. We've already seen the expectation of Noah and his sons, how man's expectation clashed with God's and how that's ended up for Noah. We've already seen the reality of Noah and his sons. We've seen how sin is still present in mankind, how Noah was never the answer to the promised redeemer role. And now we're going to see the legacy of Noah and his sons, and we're moving into prophecy now. And interestingly, the words in this prophecy are the only words recorded of Noah in the whole entire Bible. And whilst these may be the words of a drunk man, they're a prophecy that will end up shaping the whole biblical narrative 
and changing the, the course of God's people from Noah to us sat in church today. I can't wait to t- talk you through these verses, but before we get into the words themselves, we need to understand what a prophecy is. Prophecies are words or instructions that are imparted from God to people. Here we see Noah, and he's going to be speaking, he's going to be proclaiming truths that are yet to come. Often in prophecy, language is a bit more poetic. People or animals are used as symbols to describe all manner of things. Here we're going to see Noah's sons used as symbols to represent people groups who will then become descendants of the earth. And hopefully this symbology will make sense as we walk through the passages. But what we're going to see is just how accurate and relevant Noah's prophecy is. So let's start at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. We've just seen what Ham has done to Noah and how he's disrespected him. And now when Noah finds out about it, he prophetically places a curse, not on Ham, but on his son Canaan, on his grandson. You might be wondering, well, why has Noah placed a curse on Canaan and not on Ham himself, who who disrespected him? And I think there's a few reasons why that commentators think, but I think the two most solid ones are that that God's just blessed Noah, um, blessed Ham, so Noah couldn't undo that blessing. And the second one is that through the actions of Ham, certain character traits are now being transposed or being manifested through Canaan, down to his son Canaan. And at this point, we can start to move away of seeing these people uh, in this prophecy as seeing the people as just Noah's sons, but looking at them as groups of people. We know that the descendants of Canaan will become the Canaanite people. They'll establish their dwelling in the land of Canaan. What we also see in the Bible is just how truly awful their character traits will be. It's difficult to describe the moral decay of the Canaanite society, especially their religious practices. But the laws given in Leviticus 18 will give you an idea of how they lived. God constantly warns Israel not to engage with the Canaanite way of life and to destroy everything that would tempt them in the direction of the Canaanites. And there will be a servant of servants to their brothers. Here we're going to see how this plays out in the rest of the prophecy, but it's interesting to know that this is the first time of three times that Noah will proclaim the Canaanite people will be servants to their, the descendants of Shem and Japheth. Verse 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Again, we see Noah prophesying, not directly at one of his sons, But this time, he's aiming the prophecy at somebody else. He's aiming it at the Lord, Jehovah, the Lord, the God of Shem. This implies that in contrast to Ham, Shem is walking as one of God's people. Because Jehovah is the God of Shem, this indicates that Shem is being used by God. And I don't know if this is an aside, but I was wondering whether it was Shem's influence, for example, that convinced uh, his brother Japheth to cover the nakedness of Noah. Of course, we don't know the answer to that, but don't forget, we're not looking at these people as people necessarily, but we're looking at the descendants of who they're going to become. Here, we know that Noah is prophesying about Shem's descendants who will become the people of Israel. 
We know this because through the line of Shem, God will choose to bless Abraham. He will establish his people through Abraham and the people of Israel. We'll see this played out in a couple of chapters' time, in chapter 11. So knowing this, we can read the verse as, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, and let Canaanites be servants to Israel. It kind of takes another, another truth to this prophecy. We see this prophecy played out through the entire Pentateuch. Isn't it? I think it's incredible that sometimes we can witness the, um, we can miss these things. What I also want to see here, though, is that Noah isn't blessing Israel themselves, but instead he's blessing their God, Jehovah. And this is relevant today because it shows us we should never take credit for the work that God does through his people. We don't do the work. God does it. Verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. I just want to give you a heads up here. This is probably my favourite prophecy of all of them. May God enlarge Japheth. Well, here we have another slight twist in the prophecy. We've already had a curse and a blessing. Now we have something which is more like a prayer or a request. May God enlarge Japheth. And here's the thing about the name Japheth. It's used in the same sort of way as Noah's is. As we know, Noah sounds like the word comfort. Whilst Japheth's name sounds like the word enlarge. As Noah was supposed to comfort his people, Japheth is supposed to enlarge his people. And we see that that's exactly what happens with his descendants. Because Japheth is the ancestor of what we call the Gentile nations. You see, whilst the Canaanites and the people of Israel largely stayed in particular areas, Japheth's descendants dispersed and they settled in places such as Europe and Asia Minor, thus fulfilling Japheth's namesake to enlarge, to prosper and to grow. This is something that we'll see in, in more detail next week. But what does this mean, this part here which says, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem? Well, again, if we replace the name of Noah's sons with the people who they represent and the descendants that they will become, and when we do this, we'll start to see the prophecy reads entirely differently. Well, not differently, but with more truth. It says, may God enlarge the Gentiles and let the Gentiles dwell in the tents of Israel. Let the Gentiles dwell in the tents of Israel. The Gentiles will become united with Israel. As we know, Israel was cho chosen by God to be the light of the Gentiles. We read that in Isaiah 42 and 49. So when you start to put all of this together, what we're essentially reading here is a gospel message that through the Jewish people, and particularly through the work of Christ, all the nations of earth will be blessed. It's God's incredible promise that God made to Abraham, that through Abraham's offspring, who is Christ, the whole world would be blessed. When we're talking about the relationship between Israel and the Gentiles, I like what Matthew Henry writes when he sums up this passage. Both shall be one in Christ, and the Christian church, mostly made up of Gentiles, shall succeed the Jews in the privilege of church membership. The latter, having first cast themselves out by their unbelief, the Gentiles shall now dwell in their tents. Paul says in Romans 11.11, 11, when he talks about the relationship between Israel and the Gentiles. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? 
Here he's talking about Israel. Did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, through the trespass of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Right now, brothers and sisters, we're dwelling in the tents of Shem. When Jesus commissioned his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, this is what it's all about. That Gentiles such as ourselves would be included in God's people. We will inherit the house of the Lord. We will dwell in the tents of Shem. Verse 28. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Here we're rounding off the life of Noah. And see, Noah himself never stepped into those expectations from God to multiply and have more children. Nothing else of significance is really mentioned of Noah except his age. He lived 20 years younger than his grandfather Methuselah. And yet this age is pretty significant. It's significant because in the next 350 years, Noah would have lived to see the Tower of Babel. He would see the Canaanite people become a twisted and evil race. He will watch as Japheth's descendants enlarge their wealth and land. He will see many battles and many deaths between his children. I wonder if, God, if, I wonder if Noah saw God quietly working through the line of Shem. When Noah dies, Abraham will be 58 years old. Imagine Noah on his deathbed thinking about his long life, thinking about all the evil that he's seen, not just before the flood, but after it too. So what can we say about Noah's life? It's pretty clear that he's seen it all. He's a righteous man in times of evil. He's a faithful man in times of destruction. He's a blessed man in times of renewal. And he's a drunk man in times of opportunity. He was a man who saved the world. He was a man who saw what the world was to become. Noah was used mightily by God. And today we use him to teach our children, as we saw earlier. We use him to show righteousness. We use, we use him to show hope. We also use him to show sin. I think the life of Noah can teach us so much about ourselves. But I think it's so much more about the grace and the mercy of God. So as we look at our application for this sermon, uh, I asked at the beginning of this sermon, why wasn't God able to live happily ever after? And I think it's clear that God's plan is perfect. God's plan is perfect. Noah wasn't the answer. He was never able to be the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. Noah wasn't able to save himself for sin, and he wasn't able to save anybody else from their sins either. It's clear that Noah needed Jesus, his descendants needed Jesus, and we need Jesus because God's plan is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your wonderful plan, and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that through the lens of Jesus, we can look at this story of Noah and, and realise that Noah never was truly the answer to your plan. Lord, we, we, just, we just pray that this week that you would be with us, that you would, uh, that you would give us this uh, message and, and put it in our hearts this week, Lord. Help us understand that maybe our ways, our expectations aren't always the best way. Lord, help us to trust in the plan of Jesus. Help us to feel rested 
that he's done all the work. Lord, we hope, I hope that this message brings bring comfort to us this week. And I hope that you, would, uh, that you would be with us, that you would keep us until we gather here again in the tents of Shem next week. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.